morning, everyone. Good morning, Linda. My name's Linda, and I'm an alcoholic. Can you hear me okay? You can. Last night it seemed a little, little echoey in here. And it sounds a little echoey just sitting there, so I'll try to keep my... Sounds a little too much like a nightclub. <laughs> um, I'd first like to uh, thank the committee for uh, being so gracious and for allowing me to participate in this uh, Rule 62 conference. I've, I've been hearing about this conference for several years. A, a number of people from my original home group in Wisconsin have been coming down here, I think, for about the last six years. And uh, I've heard that it's an enthusiastic and fun conference, and I'm real honored to be here. I'm kind of a baby on the program, and I'm in, in awe of the speakers that I'm sharing this podium with this weekend. Um, <coughs> I have to say that Peggy is my heroine, uh, probably the, the woman speaker that I most identify I think, with anybody. Uh, although I'm not quite as right-brained, perhaps, as she is. I, uh, I have mixed dominance. I mean, I was also that sister of hers with all the stuffed animals in the bed all organized. I've always been a little compulsive, and I, I've known in my home group for the one who comes in and, and organizes the chairs and tries to make the rows straight. It's the right, it's the right feel in the room. Um, and I'd also say that I never cheat in my purse. <laughs> However, it occurred to me, and I'll tell this for the benefit of the few people who are here from the Badger Group in Walker, Wisconsin, a couple of years before I got Alcoholics Anonymous, I was at a Fourth of July picnic at Worth Park in uh, Brookfield, Wisconsin, um, uh, watching the fireworks with my husband and children and my in-laws, and uh, I suddenly felt the need to relieve myself, so I went down a little embankment to see the long grass by the creek there. And uh, after squatting to do my business, I fell into it. Um, I was unable, just rolling around in the long, cheesy grass, and unable to pull myself out of there. And and, uh, a lot easier getting down than getting back up. And, you know, that's been my experience with drinking, too, is that I don't seem to be drunk right up to the point where I'm really drunk. You know, I can hold myself together all evening long and seem to be able to walk and not slur my words too much and then I maybe I would get home and go out the backyard to walk the dogs and suddenly I would be walking drunk and it would just come over me and this is what happened on, at Worth Park on that evening and I, uh, probably typical of me, I probably made an excuse and told the family that I turned my ankle or something and sort of helped me out of there and you know, I probably did turn my ankle but it wasn't, it was, it, <laughs> that wasn't why I fell down. Um, I, uh, I've known Keith and Sally really pretty much since I got sober because they used to come to my home group and walk the show and they're very close with the guy who started my home group and, uh, and, uh, I've known Hank for a long time and, uh, <laughs> known him a lot better in the last couple of years. <laughs> so it's really an honor to be here this weekend and I thank those of you who got up this morning to come and support me and listen to me. It's, it's uh, you know, hard to speak to an empty room, and so I'm glad that people are trickling in here. Um, tell you a little bit about, and like Peggy, I, you know, I don't have any idea where I'm going to stay up here, and I've always been told not to try to control my story and, you know, figure out exactly what I'm going to say, and so I really worked with that 
for this weekend and not plan out what I was going to say that this could be asked to be used as an instrument and let come through whatever comes through. And and uh, so if I give a crappy talk, it's really not my fault. <laughs> um, I, uh, um, I, I, sometimes I'm sorry that I don't have one of those real harrowing drunk logs. Uh, you know, I'm not one of those people who crawled in here on my hands and knees coming off my last drunk. I'm one of those people who came here, in here pretty much to get the heat off. And I got this thing, um, by being here for a little while until it settled in while I was here. Where I was, and I'll just tell you a little bit about how I happened to get here, and by the way, my sobriety date is January 13th, 1982. And, uh, thank you. <clears throat> where I was and how I got here, I, uh, had been, I was kind of a housewife drunk, and I'd been living with my, uh, my husband and three children, and mostly not working. And, uh, I'd gotten where I couldn't stand to be in my home anymore. It was very unsatisfying to me. I, uh, I had a dreary life, I thought, and I found an opportunity to move out into a little cottage on a lake, 16 miles from my home. And, um, I, uh, because it, I needed a chance to think and get, get, get clear on my life. And I, I didn't even know that it was about drinking was my problem. I, I had a lot of problems in my life, but this, this, you know, drinking was my solution for those problems rather than the problems being caused by the drinking. In fact, the first AA meeting that I went to that talked about the powers over alcohol in our lives are manageable. I thought, uh, you know, I still had a lot of problems in my life, and that's why I drank. Um, anyway, I was living in a little cottage on, out, out there um, and driving back and forth every day to see my kids because I was going to be a good mother. It was always important to me um, to look good and to have good reasons for everything that I did. And uh, because of the way, the way I was living, and I'll get back into that a little bit in a few minutes, um, people were asking me questions that I couldn't come up with good answers to anymore. Um, and that's how I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I ran out of answers to questions. I didn't know the answers. People were asking me, um, what are you doing? Are you going to get a divorce? Are you, I was separated. Are you going to get a divorce? Are you going to move back home? Or do you want to have your children or, 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 or are you going to give them up? And, and uh, I, I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> you know, I was involved with someone outside of my marriage that I thought I wanted to marry. And, but I didn't want to give up my husband. <laughs> I didn't want to get divorced. I didn't want to give up my husband and children. I wanted, you know, and uh, so I couldn't really answer that question. And, you know, I've heard Hank say a number of times, you know, if you can't make a decision, sooner or later people will make decisions for you. And that's what began to happen for me. But uh, I couldn't defend and justify my life anymore. And I was seeing a, a, a therapist who, as it turned out, knew nothing about alcoholism. My then husband was also seeing a, a counselor who did know something about it. And his counselor told, I found this out a couple of years later, told my counselor that until the problem of alcoholism was addressed in his family, nothing was going to get any better. So my counselor asked me one day about my drinking. And for whatever reason, I was willing to cop out to the fact that I drank in a excessive way. And he asked me if I would be willing to have an assessment. And I agreed to have the assessment, but I put it off 
until after the Christmas holidays, 1981. <laughs> and really, my life was pretty chaotic. Here I was separated from my family, and yet I was going to take a vacation or a holiday with them over the Christmas holidays. We were going to fly out to California to be with his family, and then I was going to fly down to Florida and see my dad who was dying of cancer. And I really didn't want to deal with this drinking issue at that time, so I did put it off until after the holidays. And I came back to the beginning of January and he asked if I'd be ready to have the assessment and I said that I would. And um, so I made the appointment and, and, and went in and uh, answered the questions and for whatever reason I was halfway honest about it. And, you know, at the end of the thing I didn't want to hear the words. I didn't want to hear her say what it was that I had. And I just, you know, I just kind of Wind, she started telling me about treatment programs and things like that, and I had never known anybody who had had any kind of treatment for alcoholism. I didn't know anything about treatment or big book or steps or anything, but I had heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't think I was physically so sick that I had to go to the hospital, so if she was telling me about going to a treatment program in a hospital, I didn't think I, I was that sick. And so um, she gave me a meeting directory, of Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and I'd heard of AA. You know, like somewhere over the years, you know, it just subliminally had crept in. I knew that AA was the place where alcoholics went that worked. You know, I knew that before I got here. That was the thing that worked. I had a good reputation. I'd seen days of wine and roses, and I had my own mental image of what AA was, I suppose. And, uh, you know, when those late night public service announcements would come on TV, the kind you shut off because you don't want the rest of the family to hear them. You know, I, you know, I knew. And, um, I, uh, I went home that night and, and the counselor that I had been seeing said something about if you can just drink two, you're not an alcoholic. So I went home that night and I drank two beers and stopped. You know, I thought, so I'll go to AA and I'll tell them. And the very next night, I, I took the meeting out of the directory and I went there and uh, they did a first step meeting. And, you know, I didn't tell them the part about the two beers because by the time it had gone around the room, I kind of picked up the beat, but that wasn't exactly going to get me off the hook, you know. You know, and I didn't, I didn't really think that I was an alcoholic. I mean, I knew that I had this thing about drinking. I knew that I drank absolutely compulsively. And I'll tell you, I was an all day long, every day drinker. I drank to live. I drank to do everything or anything, and I had not missed a day of drinking in at least 10, 15 years, except for one period of time, a couple of years before I got sober, where I got to that point where I'd been drinking and drinking and drinking and feeling so crappy physically that I thought, I've got to, I've got to get off this stuff. I've got to purify my body or something. I've got to, you know, kind of and, uh, you know, I was just worried about the way I was getting, and so I had gone for eight days without drinking, and for all I know, I was probably taking tranquilizers, and I was always taking something. I always felt that I always had an appropriate symptom to take something. <clears throat> and so, and then I didn't know that that meant I wasn't sober, I just wasn't drinking. And after it, and I had no intention of quitting drinking, but I went eight days without drinking. And the end of the eight days, I said to myself, well, if you can go eight days without drinking, you're obviously not an alcoholic. So I resumed drinking, and in no time I was back drinking just as bad as I had been before. But with the exception of that experiment, I'd gone 10 or 15 years of being a, a daily drinker. I didn't miss a beat. When I went in the hospital to have my baby, I had three children, and I, I never missed a beat. My husband would bring in little flasks of scotch, and we'd celebrate the birth of those children. 
and I had the doctors prescribe beer for me in the hospital so that I could produce milk to nurse my baby. And they would do that. You know, I think about it. That, that beer would come out of the hospital refrigerator with one of those med labels, just like you got on a prescription. You know? And it, just, it seems obvious to me that this was okay. I, you know, I, I felt drinking was my birthright. And I'll jump around a lot in my story, but I guess that's okay. I'll get back to the getting sober part. But the way that I drank, I started drinking when I, uh, about the time I went off to college. And, uh, I went off to college. I, I always knew I would drink. In my home, drinking was very acceptable. Drunkenness was not. My parents had, had alcohol as part of every social occasion. They had a cocktail hour on our home and, and, uh, I always looked forward to the time when I could leave the children's hour and join the cocktail hour because it seemed like a very grown-up sophisticated thing. There was alcohol always around and I wanted to be part of that. More than anything growing up, I wanted to be mature and sophisticated and I was, I was a slow-blooming kid. I was a head shorter than all the other kids for all the years of growing up, and I was flat-chested where all the other girls were developing, and I, you know, I hated that, and I fantasized being a sophisticated adult, and that's what I wanted. I, you know, it's always, you know, when I turn 10, then I'll be double-digit, or when I turn 16, I'll have my driver's license, or when I turn 18, then it'll be legal to drink in 3.2 beer in Ohio or something. I, you know, I... I always thought, someday, when I get to this point, then I'll feel okay, and then I'll have it together. I yearned to be an adult, and I, and I saw drinking as part of the whole sophistication, and so I knew I would drink, and my parents had allowed me to have little glasses of wine, things like that, as a, as a kid, and I don't remember them doing anything all that special for me, but I sure liked everything that went along with it, and around the time I graduated from high school, I'll tell you, I was kind of a goody two-shoes through school. I was a people pleaser and, and, you know, I was one who wanted attention very much and I was able to get attention for the most part for being good and being successful. And, um, and, and besides, I was, I was scared to be bad, you know, sometimes you think that some of us who, who were, were so well behaved could get on a high horse about how good we were. The fact is I was terrified of getting caught doing anything wrong. There's death of that. In fact, if anybody ever did accuse me of doing anything wrong, I immediately had an excuse. You know, I had a reason for everything I ever did. And, uh, you know, and I discovered as a young child um, that what I wanted to do and what they wanted me to do weren't always one and the same. So I, from, you know, I became a closet a lot of things from the time I was about three years old. You know, a sneaky kid is what I was. And I, you know, I had to hide everything that I did that I felt they wouldn't approve of, and if I ever got caught for anything, I always had to come up with a quick reason, and I'll tell you, I've heard it said, you know, lies come to us like songs to a songwriter, you know, they lie without any forethought at all, and that hasn't completely gone away, you know, I could be coming back uh, for my lunch hour at work a few minutes late, I go to the Y, usually at lunch hour, and uh, and, I, and I, I know I'm getting back to work late, in fact, if they don't ever ask, and they don't care, but I'm always thinking of what I could tell them in case they did. You know, and and I know better today than to actually try to pull that stuff. But my mind is always working on it anyway to think of excuses and reasons for why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's always been very important to me to have a good reason for everything. And um, anyway, I uh, I so I started drinking when I went off to college. And the first thing I went to the University of Michigan. I grew up in the Detroit area, 
and the drinking age in Michigan, this is 1963, the drinking age was 21. And uh, I was just short of my 18th birthday when I went off to college, and I got ID that said I was 22 and a half, and I looked 14. <laughs> you know, so I did that with not one thought about the fact that I might get busted for having fake ID, or that there was anything wrong with paying somebody money to falsify papers for me. I knew that drinking was part of my birthright, and now I felt that I was old enough to do it. And, uh, you know... I was off and running, and I loved alcohol from the very beginning. And I'm not one of these people whose disease progressed instantly to where I immediately started having blackouts and problems. I appeared to be able to handle it for a long, long time. And so I looked like a social drinker to a lot of people for a lot of years, and the part that wasn't social drinking, I was successful in hiding from people for a long, long time. But I loved alcohol from the very beginning. It allowed me finally to make my dreams come true. You know, I've been a fantasizer the whole time of growing up about all of us, you know, being popular and comfortable and all the things. And you all know that because that's what it did for all of us. You know, I came to understand that what makes me an alcoholic is not all the, the hell that I put my family through or the things that I did or whether I passed out or blacked out or cracked cars or anything like that. What makes me an alcoholic is the fact that alcohol made me see things differently, made me feel differently. It did something marvelous for me. And, uh, you know, that was why it was so hard for me to stop drinking, because I still associated alcohol with feeling good. You know, alcohol for me was the secret of life. It was the one thing that allowed me to feel the way I wanted to feel. And it got to where it, it had certain problems associated with it, but I was willing to pay the price for a long time. Because I still thought of alcohol as the thing that would get me there. It worked wonderfully for me. And I don't have a drug story. I tried marijuana like a lot of people did and other things as well and took a lot of prescription pills. But alcohol was the thing that for me got me right where I wanted to be. And uh, I worked at it for a long time pretty successfully. Um, I knew it was out of college my first semester because I had made these discoveries about the fake ID and that they didn't have hours and that you could stay out late and you didn't have to go to class if you didn't want to, so I didn't. And you know, I went from being a little controlled goody teacher good student all the way up through, through high school to just raising hell. <laughs> I hit college and I raised hell. I had a great time and I was I was out at the swab and in on Wednesday night and drinking pictures of beer and having a great time. And I was able to do things that I never seemed I'd only fantasized about doing before. And um, I began to develop a bad reputation. <laughs> Most of it really undeserved because I still for a long time had an awful lot of strong moral values that my family had imbued me with. And I was scared of a lot of stuff too. I was scared of things like getting pregnant. So I would put myself in a lot of compromising positions because the alcohol put me there and then I would I somehow managed to crawl out of them and get away just in the nick of time. Um, that is, they, uh, I didn't get into a lot of trouble drinking for a long time. I got married right out of college. I, uh, if anybody had asked me if I'd gone to college to find a husband, I would have been very insulted. I went there because I was going to be something, and I was going to be a writer, and I was going to be, you know, something. And the fact is that I always talked about being a writer, but I was afraid to submit anything that I had written to any kind of a review or to publication or anything lest it be rejected. So I was always meeting people with great potential. I knew I could do it if I really wanted to. 
but you know, not, but I wasn't going to take the chance of not being good enough. So um, I latched on to this guy and had kind of a dependent relationship with him and managed upon graduating from college to persuade him that we ought to be married. And uh, actually, we stayed married for 20, 22 and a half years, five of them, five and a half years of sobriety. Um, but I went on with my life, and he went on with his career, and after a couple of years, we had three planned children. And my life appears to a lot of people on the outside like a very normal suburban housewife life. But I wasn't like the other suburban housewives, I can tell you that. I had notions about myself. I, um, I didn't seem to fit in with the other women in the community. I could see the women in the PTA meetings and things, and they, and the little coffee classes and things, and I did not feel like I liked them. I felt like I was some special, different kind of woman. And back in the 70s, I got a little bit involved in the women's movement, and, and I'd be, you know, have a baby strapped to my back and then marching down Wisconsin Avenue yelling, off the pigs, off the pigs. And, you know, and I, but I was really scared of, you know, being carted off to jail, you know. I heard a speaker once who talked about that he was, you know, he was really into the anti-war movement and everything. He said, well, at least they bought the records. You know, and that was me, you know. I was, you know, gung-ho, but I was afraid to get out on the front line unless they, you know, I didn't want to get any trouble. <laughs> but I thought I was quite a protester and, uh, you know, in the women's movement and all of this. But that didn't feel right either. But I felt, uh, I felt, you know, something was different about me, and I, I thought it was that I had this great creative spirit. I said I, I went to college thinking I wanted to be a writer. I had all this potential, and all my life I'd, I'd imagined things about myself, but I had illusions and notions about myself. Peggy was talking last night about the Berlin airlift, and, and I, I was thinking about how when I was about 10 years old, I had the idea of that I could be sent to the Soviet Union and talk to Nikita Khrushchev, and that I could bring about world peace. You know? And I, I used to look at my hands and think that they looked kind of like a hand of Jesus. You know? I, you know, I, no, I used to draw portraits of Jesus. I thought it was very artistic and I'd draw portraits and think that that was kind of me. And, uh, <clears throat> all these illusions and notions about that there was something very wonderful within me and I was just a great creative spark and a great creative spirit and, it's, and I hadn't done it in college, and so then I was off in my life with my three children, who turned out not to be as satisfying as I imagined they would be. Um, three planned children. When my first one was born, I immediately started buying her all these creative plays and toys, because I thought maybe I could have her walking by three months, you know. I'm going to have children, and it would be a wonderful reflection on me. And, uh, they were just children, and they, you know, I put her on this, I bought this little qualigator dolly thing, you put them on there, and they can start moving their arms and legs, and they can crawl real early, it said. And I put it on there, and she just keep up sucking, you know, and just, you know. And I was just, you know, and that was the story of, you know, my parenthood, and I these children were not bringing glory to me as I hoped that they would do. And in fact, they were, I think over the years what started happening with my three children is it, it turns out they weren't, they didn't have all that many friends or they weren't very successful in school or they had any problems one time or another and pretty soon there'd be notes sent home, uh, that they needed to see the school psychologist and stuff like that. And it's just humiliating to me that it's my children. And that's, so that part of my life wasn't all that satisfying. And, you know, I, I didn't have a clue about how to be, you know, a nurturing, consistent, guiding mother. 
it was kind of like either they're going to be glory to me or I don't know what to do with them. Great is what I ended up doing about it all. It, you know, I have some real humiliating thoughts and memories about things that I said to my kids, painful things. You know, I would never have called it outside the lines or whatever I'm doing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, just, it, it was uh, painful to me. And so that area of my life wasn't satisfying. So I, I lived in fantasy for a long time about this great creative spirit within me. And, you know, I had read a lot about famous writers and poets and, and artists who were, were eccentric. And they, they drank. And it was perfectly all right because they made such a contribution. They were so artistic and different and special. And I identified with that. I thought I was kind of that sort of creative person, and I'd read about in the 1700s and 1800s an artists who would have patients, you know, a wealthy person who would pay all of their living expenses while they could just be creative. And I began to see my husband as kind of like my patron, you know, that he would support me while I was able to do whatever I wanted to do and be creative. And my idea of being creative pretty much was having affairs, <laughs> you know. But I, and I felt like I, I had needs beyond what normal square people had. And the rules of society weren't really developed for me. I mean, I, I was more like these artists and writers. And I, you know, and I fantasized about all this great creativity that I had. And, and uh, you know, all, all this talk about creativity just gets you so far if you're not creating anything. And I wasn't creating much except habits in my household. I did eventually develop an interest outside of my home, and it, and it was birds. I'm a bird watcher, and um, I became a serious bird watcher and amateur ornithologist. In fact, I taught bird study courses for the University of Wisconsin Extension for several years. Uh, but this is a way that I was able to get out of my home and away from those kids. I'd go on field trips and teach classes, and naturally I found the bird watchers who enjoyed drinking and doing some of the other things I enjoyed doing. But it gave me an excuse and reasons. As I said, I always had to have reasons for everything I did. I always had to be able to justify my conduct so that I could go on and, and do whatever I wanted to do. And I began to lead a, a, a second life. I had my life at home where I took care of my children and, and uh, my home and my husband to the extent that I was willing. And then I had this other life over here. And I'd go out and I'd drink and I'd tell my family that I'd be back at a certain time. And of course I wasn't. I had no idea it had anything to do with the drinking, that I wasn't back. But once I started drinking, of course, then there was no telling when I would get back. And I would come back and say, I have a right to have a social life. You know, I justified everything that I did, but I'd be confused about which life I was in sometimes. Yeah, you know, I had to get back to my real life. And, uh, you know, and I'd break in, and I'd have to arrange babysitters for my kids, and I'd be much later than I told the babysitter. I do uh, my then husband was working as a musician at night, so he was often out very late. And so I could babysitters and I'd manipulate and con them so that I could go off and do whatever I wanted to do. And at times I'd get back and, and uh, you know, everything was still okay and I pulled it off somehow. And I would thank God because I knew he looked out for creative people like me, you know, when I was really being very manipulative. But naturally, problems started developing in my marriage because I had these two different lives going. And I had trouble keeping my story straight. And um, I, I began to play a lot of games. And one of the games that I always liked to play was, if you can't prove it, it isn't true. And this is the one where someone has accused you of something that you, in fact, have done. 
that you've covered your tracks so well that you know they can't possibly know for sure and that they're accusing you based on a hunch. So you have a right to be indignant and self-righteous. And by God, I was indignant and self-righteous, and I've always been pretty slick with my tongue. And I'd get into these arguments with him about this, and I'd end up making him apologize to me. You know? And feeling that it was his fault, and that he was, he was wrongly accused me. You know, and that's one of the really insidious things about our disease, is that we can end up making the, the people that we hurt the most feel like they're responsible. And, you know, I played that one pretty, pretty effectively for a long time. But there were a lot of arguments in our home. A lot of times of, of the parents being behind closed doors and the kids being sent away while the parents are going at it. And uh, it, it was difficult to, to uh, continue with that. And so when the opportunity came to move out to this little cottage on the lake, I jumped at it. I just, I wanted to be in a place where I could do what I wanted to do in peace. And as I said, I was involved with them on outside my marriage, and I wanted to be able to pursue that, but I still wanted to be a good wife and mother. And um, so every day I would drive back from this cottage to my home, because I'd be there when the kids got home from school, be the good mom. And I'd wait until he got home, and then I'd split and go back to my early life. And I'd do the grocery shopping for the family. Because I wasn't earning much money at this time, so this was very useful, doing the grocery shopping with his money, that I could cart pieces of beer back to my little cottage, is what I was doing. And, um, you know, I, it was important to me to look good as well as doing the right thing. But, you know, people, his family and my family was wondering, you know, if your marriage is in trouble, how come you're the one who's moved out? And what about these children? And who's taking care of them? And what about when he's working on the band job? What about the children? And I'd drag those kids out to that little cottage. It's a two-room cottage with a wood-burning stove. And, and uh, sometimes my kids would come out there, and my son had asthma, and he'd have an asthma attack. And I wouldn't have his medication. And I'd be trying to get him to drink herbal tea or something. I'm saying, that, you know. But I thought I was being a good mother. And my own health by then was beginning to decline. And I was getting burns and... And, and red streaks up my arms and infections and things that didn't, sores that didn't heal. And my doctor started asking me about some of these physical things that were going on with me and what was I doing living out in this little cottage. And, and uh, my kids started looking not so good and the pediatrician started asking about them and why my daughter looks so unkempt. And, you know, I said, well, she's just very willful and that's the way she wants to look. And I felt like it was all beyond my control. And, uh, while I lived out at that cottage, a couple of important things happened. One of them was a big snowstorm in the winter of 1981. But I woke up one morning and the snow had drifted against the door of my little cottage so that I couldn't even push it open. And the neighbor had to come and dig me out. I was really snowbound and I had one can of beer in the refrigerator. And I got real worried about this. And I thought, how am I going to get through this day on one can of beer? And I was out in the country. And uh, so I hit on an idea that I would open that beer at about 10, and I would drink about this much of it. And then at noon, I'd have a little bit, you know, I had it scheduled, one can of it scheduled off for the whole day. And that's what I did. And I, you know, and I was kind of getting along there. I was getting down just about the bottom of it. And about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, this big old Wisconsin snowplow came down the main road. I heard it out there, you know. And it, it didn't connect us, you know, uh, our little country road wasn't connected to the main road, but I'm out there with a shovel, so it's crazy. And the neighbor came out and she said, well, what are you doing? 
I said, well, I'm just going to go out and check the road. But I put my car out there, and, and uh, I was out on the road and into the little town of Merton in, in a flash, <laughs> and right into Eber's grocery store, uh, that had to liquor. And I thought, well, see, I didn't have to go through the whole day on Montana beer. And, and it didn't occur to me that there was anything wrong with that. You know, but after I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and thought back about some of the things I'd done, I realized how important alcohol had become to me. And uh, while I was still drinking at home, just to give you an idea of how I was drinking, an all-day-long, everyday drinker, um, of course, I, could, I, I had switched from drinking scotch, which is my favorite drink, to drinking mostly beer and wine in the last years. Because if you're going to drink all day long and still take care of your three children and appear to the outside world like you don't have a problem, it's real hard to do that on Scott. So uh, I was going through a couple of cases of beer and a couple of gallon bottles of white wine this week. And uh, I'd had that bottle of white wine in the refrigerator, and it would call to me and say, hey, you're talking about that. And I said, it called to me. Every time I circled through the kitchen, I would, I would feel the need to go in there and take that bottle, tip it up, and drink right out of the bottle. You know, just that way. And just a few good swallows of that thing. And the level of it went down enormously fast. And so I'd have to get another big gallon bottle of white wine and keep it in the trash barrel in the attached garage in a, in a paper bag so that when the level on the one in the refrigerator got down, I could carry it out to the garage and refill it from the one up there. I did a lot of refilling and a, and a lot of that sort of thing because I knew that he must be keeping track of how much I was drinking. The beer I could get away with because I did the yard work. If you do yard work, you get to drink beer. There's nothing, you know, alcoholic about that. Or if you're the one who goes up on the ladder to fix the gutters, as I did, it's all right to drink if you do that. So, or if you're ironing. Ironing is okay to drink beer while you're ironing. So, and I, and I found that, uh, you know, I'd start this drinking about 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning, and then I have a little bit, a little bit, a little bit all day long. And that's how I got through life. And I got to where if I was going to go to the grocery store, take my kids someplace, I'd have to run back in the house, put them in the car and run back in the house and take a few good belts just to do anything. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tedious when you have to keep bringing your supply and protecting your supply, refilling your supply and all that. And sometimes drinking the beer and wine wasn't enough and I'd want something more, and so I'd go over to Ray's liquor store. And I had to explain them after a while while I was there, because I was there a lot. Or I'd have to go to a different liquor store, and I'd go in there and I'd say something like, my in-laws are coming to visit, and they like martinis, what kind of gin do you think they'd like? You know, so I could explain. Or I'd say, um, I'm thinking of making a rum cake. Do you think I should get the amber or the dark rum? You know, it, just, it didn't matter what I bought after a while. It was what I could think of an excuse to be buying. Uh, and then I'd, have to, I'd be out in the parking lot drinking whatever that was out of a brown paper bag before I even left the parking lot of Ray's liquor store. And something, you know, something within me was beginning to grasp that there's something abnormal about my drinking. Another thing that I would have to do when I'd buy something like that that I knew that the rest of the family wasn't aware we had in our household, I couldn't throw the empty in our garbage because they would see that. So uh, sometimes I'd take those empties down and I'd throw them down by the railroad track because I had seen empty liquor bottles down by the railroad track, and I knew who had put them there, too. And yet, I made no association between me and the people who had thrown those empties down there. I just thought they'd kind of shown me a good place to throw your empty liquor bottle. You know, when I came to AA, you know, what I knew is what I knew. My mind had ways of making everything make sense to me. 
And, uh, you know, I, I had trouble grasping what this program was all about at first, because I, my mind told me certain things. I had, as I said, never known anybody who had been treated for alcoholism. I knew nothing about it, really. I knew nothing about the disease of alcoholism, and yet I felt that I knew the most important single thing about it, which was that I didn't have it. You know? That I was sure about. I was sure that my drinking, while I had to admit to myself even that I drank in a pretty compulsive way, I knew that wasn't alcoholism. I don't know how I knew that, but I was pretty darn sure. And part of the reason I had to hide the way that I was drinking, as I said, in my in my home and where I was raised and, and with my husband, drinking was acceptable, but excessive drinking was not. And I knew that if they had a clue how much I was drinking, somebody was going to point the finger at me and ask me if I had a problem. And I knew what the implication of that was. And I could not imagine my life without alcohol. I could not imagine not drinking. Drinking was the one thing that helped me get through. It was the secret of life. And so I couldn't bear myself to, you know, open myself up to the possibility of anyone accusing me. So that's why I've become so sneaky. And when I was living out at that little cottage, I was hiding bottles from myself. I was getting a bottle of gin in and keeping it up in the cupboard, and I was the only one living there, but I would keep putting it back and up and behind something. You know, I don't know, I guess I thought they would come out and check, check me out there. And while I was living out there is when all the people came down about, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? And I did not know. And so, uh, you know, that's how I happened to turn myself in. And they say I didn't crawl in here on my hands and knees. I knew I had this thing about drinking. I'd known for a long time. In fact, uh, a couple years before I got here, I, I'd gone through this cycle where I was just drinking all day long, and then I'd, a lot of times uh, what would happen is it'd be around dinner time, or just getting ready for my husband to come home from work, and I'd be trying to read that cookbook, and I would be so out of it, I couldn't focus on the cookbook, and I couldn't remember what I put in there. You know, and I just would be, yeah, and it, it's hard to drink like that if you're in the housewife drunk around here. Or sometimes I'd just be on the couch, and I'd just get overfilled, and he would get home, and I would tell him I had a migraine headache, which I've always had trouble with, and he'd take the kids to McDonald's while I would sleep it off. Um, but a couple of years before I got to AA, the sneakiness, the hiding of my drinking and of my whole lifestyle was getting to me to where I, I'd wake up in the middle of the night filled with self-loathing and regret and bad, horrible feelings. And I'd end up drinking myself back to sleep, most part of what I would do. You know, I'd say, I'm not going to drink like this again tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm just going to leave it alone altogether. I'm going to take a couple of days off here. And, and, the, and yet, the awareness of what was going on with me was so loathsome to me that I would have to drink myself back to sleep. And I'd been through that cycle many, many times. And on this one night, I just couldn't stand being awake at 3 o'clock in the morning. So I woke my husband up. And I told him that I had this thing about drinking. I said, I don't think I'm an alcoholic, but I've been, you know, I've really been drinking a lot. And he just kind of nodded. And, and you know, after that, I, I felt much better because I'd done something about my drinking. You know, I told somebody. And, you know, so, and, and, it's, and it's good that I went through those things because when I did get here to Alcoholics Anonymous, unsure that I was an alcoholic, and stuck around long enough, I began to hear other people's stories and began to remember things about my own and what it was all about. Let's see, I came to AA and I went to that first meeting and uh, 
something clicked with me. I didn't think I was an alcoholic, really. I knew I had this thing about drinking, and I knew that these were nice people that were, I don't know, I was willing to come back again. But what I did that night is I went home after that first meeting, and I poured the rest of the alcohol that I had in that little cottage down the sink, and I haven't had a drink since. And I had, I didn't, I didn't think I'm, I didn't think I'm quitting drinking now. I was just willing to play their little game, you know. I was willing to come to meetings and not drink. I didn't have to be, I didn't have to be all surrendered when I got here, but some part of me must have been. But I'll tell you, something did happen that was pretty significant in my sobriety when I was just a couple weeks sober, and that was that this husband, I now told him that I turned myself into AA, and that I wasn't drinking, and that I had to get my sobriety together, and he wanted to know, did that mean I was going to move home, and was I going to resume the marriage? And I said, I don't know, one more time. And he pressured me for an answer, and I just couldn't give him an answer. I said, well, I think I need to stay out in this little cottage and get my sobriety together. And uh, I danced him one more time. And so he filed for divorce and asked for custody of our three children. And he was going to show that I was an unfit mother and that I'd abandoned them. And um, when this news got to me of that little cottage a couple, two, three weeks over, that's what hit my bottom. Because I knew he had me dead to right. I'd always had good reasons for everything I did. I could argue with everybody about why I was doing what I was doing. And suddenly I realized that he had a case. And he could take those children, and I had moved out of that home. And I was devastated. I was just devastated, and I screamed and carried on, and I was going to kill myself and all the things to do when the heat was really on. But I surrendered, evidently. As I got down on this little mattress, I was sleeping on, I was sleeping on a mattress on the floor, and I'd gotten a big book, and I hadn't really spent much time in it, but I happened to open that book to, uh, I think it's page 60, right after how it works. For some reason, the book magically opened. <laughs> and I read about where it talks about selfishness and self-centeredness and about trying to run the show and if only people would do like we want them to do, everything would be great, but they don't, so we try harder and manipulate and turn and it's all about me and what I want. And I recognized myself. I knew that was me. And I knew that I needed this thing. I'd been to enough meetings. I, I knew what was here and that it had something to do with self-centeredness and I knew I needed this. And yet, I still wasn't clear about the, how the drinking fit into this whole picture. I knew I drank excessively, but I didn't see the connection for a while. It turned out that was okay. And um, it was about that time that I really made the surrender to AA, and I got a sponsor. I'd been going to a group where they kept saying, do you have a sponsor, do you have a sponsor? In fact, three of the people who said, do you have a sponsor, do you have a sponsor, are in this room tonight. It's real pretty neat. Um, I'm going to digress for just a second. Uh, people were talking about San Diego, and I was privileged to go there to the International as well. And uh, just before we went to San Diego, uh, a bunch of people got together at the Pacific Group out in Los Angeles, which most of you probably have heard of. And, and the group where I got sober was a spin-off of that group. And about 50 people from the Badgers in Waukesha, Wisconsin, who were also going to the International, had taken a bus up to the Pacific Group that night. And we had come from North Carolina, and some of the people I sponsored also come from North Carolina, and we were coming to the meeting that night. And um, as we arrived at the group to, to wait to go into the meeting, there were, there were these 50 people from Wisconsin all wearing the red caps. And uh, in that group of people, there were 10 women who were at the first 
women's stag meeting that I ever went to in that group, and they're all still sober. So they all got more than 13 and a half years of sobriety, and three of them are here tonight, or this morning. And, uh, you know, I had a spiritual experience at the Pacific group that night, because in that room were my babies that I sponsored, and my sponsor, and my grandsponsor, and my great-grandsponsor, and my great-great-grandsponsor, Clancy. And uh, we're all still sober. And uh, you know, I don't know why. What a privilege, you know. I don't know why things happen the way they happen. But uh, it was it was a pretty cheerful thing to, to have all these people together. Um, anyway, I say that in the first weeks, people kept saying, "Do you have a sponsor?" And I I asked someone to be my sponsor who had reached out to me at that first meeting and who had introduced herself and showed me, you know, who the coffee was and told me what to do. You know, so many times I think we walk in the meetings and, or if we're, we're there in the meetings, we get so caught up in talking to the people that we know, or sitting at the tables and going on about our business, we may not notice a new person walking in. And, uh, this person noticed me, and I was just very grateful for that, and, and I asked her to be my sponsor, and she's still my sponsor today, she's sitting right down here. And, uh, she came down from Wisconsin, and it's, you know, it means a tremendous amount to me. But that's one of the things that I try to cultivate in my sobriety is an awareness of other people. You know, I came in self-centered in the extreme. And, you know, I was always a person who wanted, I wanted to be a part of something. I wanted to fit in. I, you know, all through high school, it was that thing about seeing the group of popular people and not quite feeling like I could be one of them. And so putting them down, that's what you do, right? If you think you can't be a part of something, you put them down. And so all the popular cheerleaders were a bunch of airheads and all the, all the girls who were on the swim team, like I had to work for them too, I secretly wanted to be on the swim team. You know, I wanted to be part of the popular group or the intellectual group or something, and I was kind of on the fringe of all of these things and never felt like I fit in. If I walked up to a group of people who were standing and talking, I always felt that they didn't really want me to be there. It's sort of like, we've got enough friends, thank you. You know, and when I came to AA, I kind of felt the same way. When I came to the first meeting of the group that became my home group, the Badger group, people seemed to know each other, and they're standing around making small talk, and, I, and I'd walk up to them, and I was sure they didn't want me to be there. They had enough friends, thank you. And yet I didn't want them to know how ill at ease and self-conscious I felt, so I would, I would act like I was okay with it. But that's how I had always felt. That's why I drank. <laughs> I don't like feeling like that. When I drank... If they didn't accept me, it was their loss, you know. Well, when I got sober, there I, I was having to feel all those feelings again about not fitting in and, and um, not being accepted and not being as good as and all of that. And, and I had to work through a lot of that in sobriety. And, and uh, I had to learn that I had to learn that people weren't thinking about me nearly as much as I was thinking about me. And it wasn't so deliberate. But as I say, one of the things I try to cultivate in my sobriety is an awareness of other people, because I know people come in feeling that same thing, not fitting in. And I think that that's what we're about at our meetings, is reaching out to, you know, that's where it's the most important place to carry the message as far as I'm concerned, because people who get there, anybody who comes to an AA meeting must at least a little bit want this thing, or else why would they come? You know, we're there because we want help. And uh, so I, so I, I stick out my hand as it was done for me and that I've been grateful for for such a long time. And, and we just had a group inventory meeting at our group the other night to remind us to do that very thing. 
to have an awareness of other people. Anyway, I got a sponsor and I got involved with this big active group that he came to many times and and uh, got connected. But, you know, I still wasn't sure that I was an alcoholic. Sometimes I felt like maybe I'm here by mistake because I'd hear people tell their stories and they had these great harrowing adventures and I would think, oh, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And I would never do that. And people would throw in this thing about yes. And I was still, my mind would still say, I would never do that. And it took me a while to be able to identify. And I guess it was when I was three or four months sober that I heard Clancy talk for the first time. And that was really a turning point in my sobriety because he talked about, as I mentioned before, that it wasn't so much what alcohol did to us as what it did for us that made us alcoholics. And that distinction made all the difference in the world to me. And uh, besides, he was very funny, and he was very neat, and I felt like I want to be in a place that has people like him in it. You know, I loved the enthusiasm that I felt there. I began to be attracted to the enthusiasm and the irreverent laughter and all of that, and felt like this was a good place to be. And that's, I, that's why I like to go to conventions. I love to hear speakers who are enjoying their sobriety and to make this thing be fun and make it an okay place to be. And when you're joining hands with 60,000 other alcoholics in the Jack Murphy Stadium and doing the wave and all of that, it feels like a good place to be, you know? You have to apologize for being alcoholics in San Diego, you know? And uh, anyway, I, uh, I, uh, I rejoined my marriage right after I got sober and got a sponsor. And my then-husband was willing to give me a kind of a stay of execution. He, he, uh, he got a 90-day postponement on the court action, and after 90 days, he got another one. And after that, he was through the, the divorce uh, action. And uh, my sponsor had told me that it would be a good idea for me to move back home because he didn't want me to have to make a major decision about getting divorced when I was newly sober. And so if that's what it took to put off such a decision, then I better move back home. And I did. And uh, it wasn't easy to go back into the home where I felt so awful and had such conflict in my marriage. And fortunately, my husband got involved in Al-Anon. And he got to where he was going to his meetings. And, and uh, we had a bit of conflict between the two programs or how he, we each interpreted our programs and what they meant. And... Uh, but we were able to kind of each go our own way, and my sponsor kept me very involved with the meetings and the groups, and putting my focus on my own sobriety. And, and uh, my husband was of a professional bent. In fact, he was the mental health director of our county, and he was in charge of programs for alcoholism and drug abuse. It was pretty funny, because he knew nothing about it whatsoever. He had this alcoholic wife, and he hadn't even a clue what it was that was going on. But he began to learn, I'll tell you that. But he went to Al-Anon, but he also went to some good things that professionals would want you to go to, I guess. And, and he was getting all this confrontational stuff. And things weren't always real smooth in those early months in our home. And um, when I was three or four months sober, I was standing at the, at the stove cooking one night. And he was in the kitchen kind of grinding me about something, money. It was about money. And uh, I'd always had a problem with impulse control when I was drinking. <laughs> You know, that moment would come when I would snap and I would do it. I would knock the TV over or jump out of the car that was still moving or, you know, throw punches. And, uh, you know, I was, had a real problem about that impulse control. And here I was sober and he's writing me about money. And, and in a flash, this heavy metal cooking spoon left my hand 
and hit him upside the head and made a cut right here and his blood started to come down. And he went storming upstairs to the bedroom and slammed the door and I immediately knew I owed him an amends. So I went slamming up the, up the, up the stairs after him to deliver my amends and he had locked the door so I broke the door down to go over and deliver my amends. That's on him basically cowering in the court. <laughs> you know, he said, you know, I believe you're right. I don't think we can live together. And he said, this time I'm going to move out. And I was devastated once again. And I called my sponsor and I went over to her apartment that night. And I said, how could I have done this? And I'm sober and I've done this. Now, you know, we got back together and now I've ruined it and I'm sober. And she helped me to understand that I could not undo what I had done. And I could only move forward to work my program to the best of my ability, and that what was going to happen was going to happen. And um, somehow I got peace with that, that, that I could go forward and work my program. We worked on impulse control, though. <laughs> and it says in the 12 and 12 and the 10th step, something about the self-restraint as being a top priority item. And uh, I had to begin to recognize this little sign in myself that, <laughs> you know, that resentment was building. And, you know, I've never thrown anything since that time. And uh, I'm grateful for that. As it turned out, I went back home and he decided not to move out for whatever reason. And we did stay together for five and a half years. And it's, uh, it's five and a half years we, we moved away from Wisconsin. We moved down to North Carolina uh, to uh, where I'm living now. And uh, our marriage was... Uh, it's probably the best shape that it had been when they moved, although there were some issues that had never been addressed that had been kind of swept under the carpet because it just seemed too difficult to deal with them. And when I got away from my home group and from my sponsor long distance and got down there, I got kind of an ego trip. I arrived at meetings where with five years sobriety, I was somebody. And they were pretty impressed with me and they were calling me to speak here and there. And, and uh, I thought I was really something. And and I would call my sponsor long distance and tell her about the situation there. And she gave me some clear directions on the phone. And I thought, but you don't understand. And I went back into the old thing. You're not here. You don't know what the situation is. And I began sponsoring myself. And, uh, and you know, I would hear her and I would agree with her. And then the next day it all looked different to me. And uh, what happened is that I became real attracted to someone I met in, in, a, in, the, in one of the meetings I was going to. And I broke up my marriage in a not very nice way. And, it, and I believe today that it was a marriage that really didn't need to go on, but it certainly didn't need to be broken up by going back into the old ideas. But once I had made my decision, then I had to start justifying my decision. And I got into a very sick relationship with a very sick member of AA who wasn't, in fact, truly sober because I found evidence that he was smoking marijuana. And he had passed himself off as sober. But I was able to push all that information away and get back you know, back into wanting what I wanted when I wanted it and justifying my behavior. And I put myself through a lot of pain for a couple of years. But during that time, some important things happened. And one of them was that I began to have to take responsibility for myself because it was evident that, that I, this wasn't going to be my answer in this relationship. And uh, I left that relationship. But meanwhile, I had to credit in my own name for the first time and get a full-time job with benefits. Uh, get a car in my own name and then an apartment in my own name and begin finally to take some responsibility for myself and to recognize that it was not another person's presence in my life that was going to hold me together. It was my 
being held together had to have something to do with my spiritual contact and let laugh. And um, I made another important surrender. And uh, I still have my same sponsor long distance, but now I listen to her. Because I I put myself in more pain that, you know, that, that I can ever remember in my life in, in that situation. And it, it was a very sick person who subsequently um, took the life of another person who's serving, who's serving a life sentence in the federal penitentiary. And some of that sick that I had uh, put myself in a relationship with. But for me, it was such an important lesson that my, and I, you know, I had, I was able to forgive myself for all the things I did when I was drinking, but it was not easy for me to forgive myself for something I'd done sober. And uh, my sponsor pointed out to me that I am still an alcoholic and left to my own devices. And Jim said it last night, something about, he said, he said, the old Jim will drink, you know. And the old Linda will do a lot of things that I used to do. And Peggy said it, that we still have all those things within us. And it was a very important uh, recognition for me to know that left to my own devices, my life ain't going to go too well. And so I made that surrender and um, and reaffirmed the things that I had learned that I knew. Um, I uh, after a little period of living by myself, um, and Hank came and spoke in silence, and I had heard him speak in Madison, Wisconsin, when I was just a year or two sober, and we knew a lot of people in common. We knew Keith, and uh, we knew Bob, and, and people that uh, were important to both of our sobrieties, and he'd come from this group, after which my group was patterned, so I went up and talked with him, and one thing led to another, and we did a lot of talking, and we began to uh, have kind of a coast-to-coast, long-distance relationship, and... Uh, he said he was going to stop by sometime when he was in the area. So he was in Miami. That was only about 900 miles away. He stopped by, <laughs> stopped by and we began uh, our relationship. And, and, uh, and about four and a half years ago, he moved to Charlotte from Los Angeles. And we began our AA life together. And we've got a, a, a panel this afternoon where we're going to talk about relationships. I don't know what we're going to say, but I can tell you right now, that this relationship in my life is a whole lot different from any that I've had before, where I was so needful and so self-obsessed with how is everything going to affect me, 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 me. I've learned from someone with more sobriety than I have in this program about how to have a relationship in which most people are self-supporting through their own contributions, not just financially, but emotionally as well. Um, I, today... I am a creative person, it turns out. I also believe that part of sobriety is about discovering what our God-given talents are and, and, and making ourselves of some service using whatever our abilities are, whether our ability is to push a broom or, or to play the piano or whatever that might be that we're good at, to find the things that, 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 we're, that we're able to do and, and to develop those things and to be of use and of service with them. And I'm a writer today. Um, I've developed a career. <laughs> I've developed a career in advertising. In fact, my my last job title was creative director. <laughs> my current job, I'm just senior copywriter, but I but I am able to uh, you know I've developed a career that I would never have been able to do. Too afraid to submit anything for publication, lest it be rejected. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous has given me 
a light beyond anything that I could have imagined getting for myself. You know, I always had good intentions about doing stuff. I had plans and dreams and fantasies, but they were so, you know, I couldn't do the legwork to get there. And uh, through the example that's been set for me here, I've been able to do the legwork and uh, just, you know, one step at a time without having to keep my eye on the full objective, just doing today's business today. And uh, I like where I am today. I love my sobriety. I value it more than anything. It's number one in my life. And that's something that we try to pass on to the people in our group. We started a group in Charlotte, which is called the Southern Pacific Group. And uh, we have two 10-minute speakers, a coffee break, and a main speaker. This is the badge group does for their group. This is the Pacific Group does for their speaker meeting. And we try to pass on it. the things that have been given to us that we want keep so many people sober and improve the quality of their lives. I've been truly blessed, and I thank you for being here this morning.